We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, okay? 1 Samuel 3. We're a couple weeks into a sermon series on 1 Samuel, okay? And 1 Samuel is essentially the historical account of the rise of the Israel monarchy, okay? And so they had been run by a group of warlords in the time period of what's called the Judges, it was basically like these area warlords who led. And now we're coming out of that. And as we go into Samuel, it's going to show the transition from that into a monarchy under King Saul and then eventually under King David, which points to King Jesus, okay? This is part of the larger body of historical narrative called the Deuteronomistic history. And that just means that it's historical narrative based on the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy was the law that they gave, the second law that would show the people of Israel how they were supposed to live in the land that God had brought them to with God as their king. All right? So whenever God does a new thing in the Bible, it's super exciting. And this is what I mean by that. It's also intense. It's not just interesting. You know, we look at these miracles that we see in the Old Testament, we're like, that's crazy. But then often, immediately thereafter, if we read the scriptures and don't kind of chop them into little paragraphs, we see something that follows up that kind of makes us cringe a little bit. I'll give you a few examples. God parts the Red Sea, bring the Egyptians or bring the Israelites out of Egypt, and he brings them into what he calls the promised land, right? And he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. Or right before they go into the promised land, he gives them the Ten Commandments, his laws of how they're supposed to live so that they can accurately reflect him in the world. And the smoke, there's this mountain that they're getting the, the law from, and the people won't even go near it. They're afraid to go near it because he, they, if they touch it, they might die. We see at the inauguration of the tabernacle, which was the first place that they would go and worship God at the end of Exodus, the people inaugurate the temple and the glory of God fills the temple. And it's so overwhelming that everybody has to leave the tabernacle. Pardon me. They leave the tabernacle and they're outside and they're like, well, now what? Like we just built that. Can't even go in it. We see in the book of Joshua, as they begin their war conquest of the promised land, they go and they defeat the, the, the city of Jericho. You know, they march around it. You guys have seen the veggie tales, right? They march around it and give marching. Okay, they march around the, the city and they blow the trumpet and the walls fall down. And you say, this is amazing. And then right after that, they find out that, that this guy named Achan he stole some things from the city that he was supposed to destroy. And so then God kills him and his whole family by having the earth swallow them up. And you go, wait, what? And it continues. In Acts chapter 2, for example, you see this amazing thing. After 10 days of prayer, the Holy Spirit falls on God's people at Pentecost and dwells them for the first time, and Peter preaches, and 3,000 people follow Jesus, and then we get, we see these miracles in Acts chapter 3, and then we get to Acts chapter 4, and this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they come to Peter, and they go, hey, we sold this piece of land, and we want to give this money to the church, and Peter goes, is that all of it? And they go, yep, and he goes, you lied to the Holy Spirit, bro, and then Ananias and Sapphira fall over dead, and you're like, what? is going on. See, throughout the scriptures, we see this tension of God doing amazing things and then these reminders of the fact that God is holy. He's this holy God. 
And we're going to see some of these examples in 1 Samuel that make us pause. And whenever we see that, that kind of picture of something big and then this holiness, like the examples I gave, it normally shows that God is doing something new. He's kind of transitioning into a different chapter in redemptive history, if that makes sense. And so we can say that's exciting. But if we're honest, there's a part of us, there's a part of you, I'm going to guess that you're like me, there's a part of us that kind of says, well, how come God doesn't do that stuff anymore? Like, I think it would be pretty cool if God parted the Red Sea again, you know what I mean? And we just walked across it. And, and we like these demonstrations of power. And we think, how come this stuff doesn't happen in 2024? And like, maybe we hear a story about it in a missionary's newsletter. And we're like, yeah, like, that'd be cool. I think it happened. But I mean, I never saw it happen. I mean, maybe it happened. And so we try not to be skeptical. We want more. And so the question becomes, what are we supposed to do with these stories that we read, like the one we're going to see in 1 Samuel 3? Are we supposed to try and duplicate it? Are we supposed to learn from it as like a practical example? Is their experience supposed to be the norm? Or is my experience supposed to be the norm? These kinds of questions come to mind. Because if we're honest, our experience feels pretty lame compared to the things that they experienced, right? Can we, can we just acknowledge that? Can you say that? Anybody feel that way? Yeah. You say, that feels pretty lame, my experience compared to what we're going to read about today. Well, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 3, and I hope to explain some of these tensions. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. God's presence was rare. What does that mean? It means that God was silent. People weren't hearing from God. When Moses was around, it said God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. But now what we see is it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now Samuel, who we saw the last few weeks, Samuel is the, the son of Hannah. Hannah had him after not being able to get pregnant for many years, and then she dedicated him to the Lord as like a steward. She said, here he is, Lord, you do with him what you want. So he's growing up in the tabernacle, so to say. That's what ministering to the Lord means. He's serving God at the tabernacle under the tutelage of Eli. Eli's teaching him the ins and outs of what it means to be a priest and how he's going to do these sacrifices when he grows up and these sorts of things. And then it says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. But look what it says. There was no frequent what? Vision. I'm going to point something out that should be obvious, but it's not. When we hear the word of the Lord, we think it's something you what? Hear. Do you hear visions? You see visions. Okay? When we see this, the word of the Lord, I want you to realize the word of the Lord came in visions. A vision you could see, a vision you could hear. We have this American concept of it being like this. Hey, guys, it's God. It's God, I'm that's how we tend to view it. But that's not the biblical picture, and we're going to unpack that more. I want to put that in your ear now. That's a vision for you, okay? 
But what I want you to realize is this. The old covenant, in the old covenant, the Old Testament, the former way of things before Jesus, what you see here is there was no frequent vision. The word of the Lord was rare because it was entirely reliant on God initiating contact. I want you to see that. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse two, at that time, Eli, who's, he's the high priest whose sons were deadbeats. We talked about that. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow, his, at that time, slow down, Bill, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple or the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was. So what's going on here? Eli is on his way out. We talked last week. He's in his 90s. And it's ironic here that it says that there had been no frequent vision. And then the next sentence says what? Eli's eyesight was growing dim. In other words, Eli physically and spiritually is transitioning out of leadership. That's the whole point of this chapter because we're going to see this contrast with Samuel now being raised up as leader. So Eli is lying down in his own place, but Samuel is lying down in contrast in the tabernacle, in the temple. The temple is not built yet, the tabernacle. And so realize that in the Old Covenant, you had the tabernacle and then the temple, and there was this part of the tabernacle or the temple that was called the Holy of Holies. It was the innermost room of the tabernacle. It was shaped like a square, and that was where they kept the Ark of the Covenant because it was said that that was God's dwelling place. It was God's footstool. So the idea was that God was sitting in his throne and his feet would be on the Ark of the Covenant. So that was the closest you could be to God, but you could only go there one time a year on the Day of Atonement if you were the high priest and just to perform the Day of Atonement sacrifice. Besides that, if you went in there and you just kind of marched in, you would drop over dead. And so I want you to realize here that Eli is sleeping in his own place, but Samuel is lying down in the temple of the Lord where the Ark of God was. Now he couldn't lie down in the Holy of Holies, because that was forbidden. And so the idea here is that Samuel is as close as is legally and ceremonially possible to be without getting struck by like Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark judgment, okay? So you see this contrast between Eli and Samuel. That's what you're supposed to see here. Verse four, then the Lord called Samuel and said, here I am. And he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he, meaning Eli, said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. I'm trying to sleep. So now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, meaning, this is what it means, meaning the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He had not yet received prophetic vision. Verse 8, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose, and he went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. And then Eli finally perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. And he said, therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. So here's what's happening. 
Samuel is green to all this. This is all new for Samuel. He's never had a prophetic word. He's never seen a prophetic vision. He's new to all this. The Lord is calling him. He doesn't know what to make of it. He thinks it's Eli. And so after multiple times, Eli finally realizes what's going on here, and he tells Samuel what to do. Now, I want to make a few comments here about Samuel, because this whole section kind of underscores his character. Like I said before, he was ministering to the Lord. In other words, he's trying to do what he's supposed to do. He was close by. He's sleeping in the tabernacle. In other words, he's desiring to be close to God's presence, as close as he's legally allowed to be. And also notice how quick he is, how eager he is to obey. He's eager to obey the earthly authority placed over him as he's under the tutelage of Eli. And as soon as he thinks he hears Eli calling him, he stands up and he runs. He's eager to obey. He's active. He's ready to do whatever Eli tells him to do. And so what we realize here is that Samuel has a lot of integrity. He has a lot of character to emulate. We'll come back to that in a bit. Let's look at verse 10. And the Lord, so I want you to notice, and the Lord, read it out loud with me, came and came and stood. Remember, the word of the Lord is a vision. And the word of the Lord, or the Lord, came and stood, calling as at other times. Every single time it's been a vision of, quote, the word of the Lord as a title. He came and stood, and he says, Samuel. Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Now, like I said, we have this idea of God speaking to people with voices in their head. But if you were to do a a study of how this works in the Old Testament, specifically looking for that phrase, the word of the Lord, what you're going to realize is that time and time again, the word of the Lord is not something people hear. The word of the Lord is a person that stands in their presence. So, for example, in Genesis 15 with Abraham, it says the word of the Lord came and appeared to Abraham, and he's there hanging out. Abraham makes him some bread. Abraham sets up a little dinner for him and the word of the Lord. It says that the word of the Lord came and spoke to Moses as a man does with his friend face to face. And here the word of the Lord came and stood calling as at other times. And so in this Old Testament that we see here, the word of the Lord isn't a voice in their head. It is a being. It is a vision to be seen. And many would argue it is what's called a pre-incarnate Christ. A pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, this is Jesus before he walked the earth in the New Testament. This is a pre-incarnate Christ who's coming as the word of the Lord. Which makes sense, because what does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then fast forward to John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the word of the Lord... I believe, and there's going to be scholars who disagree with me, but they're wrong. (laughs) The word of the Lord. (laughs) I believe the word of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, look how it's also using that interchangeably. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the ears, the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And on that day, 
I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. We talked about that last week. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. The word of the Lord, the Lord himself, he came and stand before Samuel and he tells Samuel some exceptionally bad news about Eli and his boys. And Eli thought, this is great. I mean, Samuel thought, this is great. This is my first my first, you know, go at being a prophet. And so Samuel lay there, verse 15, Samuel lay until morning, probably wondering what on earth he was going to do about that. And then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Would you be afraid? Yeah, I'd be afraid. But Eli called Samuel and he said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and he hid nothing from him. And he said, him being Eli, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. You have to respect Samuel in this situation. Because the truth of the matter is, it would have been really tempting to kind of like fib a little and make it not sound as bad as it could have been to stretch the truth. After all, Eli can't necessarily call down a curse on you, but Samuel is a young man of integrity. He speaks truthfully. He speaks directly to Eli. This is the mark of someone who's going to be a faithful prophet, right? Because the prophets were like the megaphone of God in the Old Testament. And here's a man who is hearing God's voice and he's going to obey it and he's going to share it exactly like the Lord told him to. And Eli's perspective, he's God. What am I going to do about it? I'm old, whatever. That's basically how Eli responds. Verse 19, well, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So God continues to give Samuel success. It says that none of the words fell. In other words, that everything he told Samuel came to pass. He would tell Samuel something, Samuel would pass it on, and it would actually come to pass. When God speaks, he follows through, and he proved that through Samuel. And in verse 20, I want you to circle verse 20. If you have a physical Bible or if you're, you're recording on your phone, I want you to make a little mark by verse 20, because verse 20 is the point of the whole chapter. And so if you want to say, well, what is this chapter about? It's about verse 20. Look at verse 20. I'm going to read it again. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba know, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. That's the main idea of the entire chapter, that all Israel knew that Samuel, no longer Eli, that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again and continued to reveal himself. How? As the word of the Lord. 
And so the whole point of this chapter is positioning that Eli is no longer the prophet of the Lord, but God is raising up this new prophet in this young man, Samuel. Does that make sense? Yeah? All right. We're done talking about that. When we read the Bible, there's three main things we do. We observe, we interpret, and we apply. Those are the three main things that we do when we read the Bible. The fancy term for that is called hermeneutics. And when we observe, we're asking, what does this passage say? Everything that I just did was just observation. I read the passage. I retold the passage in my own words. I pointed out some things that maybe you didn't know. That's all observation. But interpretation asks, what does it mean? Or to put it another way, the interpretation is, what was the author's original intention for putting this here at all? Why is this story in our Bible versus not in our Bible? Now, if I told you that the point of this passage is this week I want you to sneak into LCMR and sleep as close to the stage as possible, just like Samuel, would that be biblically accurate? No. That is not the point of the passage. If I told you that God wants to speak to you and all you need to do is lie down and be very still, and then he will show up, Would that be a proper interpretation, even if it might happen? No. The proper interpretation of this passage is verse 20. God is no longer silent. There's a new prophet in town, and he's going to replace Eli very shortly. And so his observation is explaining what happens. The interpretation is, what is the point? What is the point of the text? And so the point of this passage is to show that Samuel is a new prophet. Right? So if someone says, what's 1 Samuel 3 about? You say, Eli's out, Samuel's in. That is the correct interpretation. There's only one interpretation, but there's many applications, many applications. And so the question for us is, all right, so what do I do? I'm glad that Samuel's the prophet. What does that mean for my life? That's what application is all about. And for application to make sense for us here in 1 Samuel 3, we need to push a little bit into the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And so I want to point out Hebrews chapter 1. We're in the New Testament now. If you want to flip over there, Hebrews chapter 1. If you don't know where Hebrews is, you can start at Revelation and go backwards a couple books, okay? Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Just like Eli was a prophet, Samuel's being established as a prophet. But, that's a big contrast word, but in these last days, he has spoken. He has spoken, past perfect. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the New King James, this is word... This is the way that it's worded is the one that I read. I wanted you to hear it in that. This idea of God spoke to our fathers by the prophets in many ways and in many times. 
You see, the Old Testament is our primary record of what we call the Old Covenant, and the New Testament is the primary record of what we call the New Covenant. Now, simplified, the Old Covenant refers to the agreement between God and the Israelites established through Moses, the law, the commandments for righteous living, how they would live as God's people, how they would stay in the land, how they would be blessed. The New Covenant signifies the promise of salvation and forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ, replacing the old system of laws with grace and redemption offered by his sacrificial death and resurrection. In the Old Covenant... Hebrews 1 says that God spoke from time to time in various ways. Sometimes he spoke through a donkey. Sometimes he spoke through, you know, a random person. Sometimes he spoke through this. And most of the time he spoke through prophets. In the Old Covenant, God spoke in various times. In other words, not consistently, not all the time, but from time to time through prophets. And in the New Covenant... He has spoken, like I said, it's past perfect, has spoken by his son. In the old covenant, the messengers were fallen. In other words, they were sinful. They were imperfect. Sometimes they were confused. Sometimes they were bad parents. Sometimes they would start off well, and then they would change their mind, and they'd get eaten by a lion, like in 1 Kings 2, or 2 Kings, I mean. That stuff happened. But in the new covenant, the messenger that we have, he's much greater than any of the other, quote, messengers, the angels. That's what Scotty read before the service. In the new covenant, the messenger is the word of the Lord. The messenger in the new covenant is the word of God. He, as Hebrews describes, is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He is perfect. He is radiant. He is glorious. He is pristine. He is full deity. And he is the one who has come as the revelation, as the logos, the one who shows us what God the Father is actually like. The point is the new covenant is greater. Now there's more of this that we could unpack throughout Hebrews. In the old covenant, God's spirit would anoint people for a purpose. In other words, it would come down and touch people for a purpose, to build the stuff for the tabernacle, to anoint David to be king. It would anoint people for a purpose, but it would leave them again. It would dwell in the temple, the holy of holies, with where the ark of the covenant was. But in the new covenant, God's spirit doesn't dwell in a building. You guys who go to Revolve should know that above all because we've been in eight buildings in 11 years, okay? God's Spirit doesn't dwell in a building. Now God's Spirit dwells in His people and it calls His people the building. That we are the household of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are living stones and He's building us together as He puts His Spirit in us. It was in the tabernacle. Not anymore. Buildings aren't holy. We are holy as his temple. In the old covenant, there was limited access to God's presence. You couldn't just go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go, and only once a year, or you would die. And if you weren't ready to go in, you would die. But in the new covenant, we have total, complete access behind the curtain which separated the holy place because when Jesus was crucified, that, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle, it was torn not bottom to top, but top to bottom, because God himself tore it, showing that we now have complete access to the Holy of Holies because of Jesus' sacrifice. Can somebody give me some kind of emotional response? Okay? Gosh, you guys are like, 
mostly dead. Gina goes, no. I'm just kidding. Only mostly dead. Okay, where was I? In the old covenant, there was absolute fear when you approach the dwelling place of God. But in the new covenant, we are commanded to boldly approach the throne with confidence at any time, regardless of where we are or how we were dressed or what we did yesterday. In the old covenant, we had fallen priests. In the new covenant, we have a perfect high priest who sacrificed once for all. That's why we don't call this a mass as Protestants, because we don't sacrifice Jesus week after week after week. We sacrifice, Jesus was sacrificed once for all, and the sacrifice is done. In every way, in every shape, in every form, we have a better covenant. We have a better promise. So we don't need to be jealous that the word of the Lord came and visited Samuel. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, the word of the Lord dwells in you. You have something that Samuel simply couldn't comprehend. You have a level of intimacy with your creator, which is beyond the comprehension. That's why Jesus said of John the Baptist, I tell you, there has never been a man born of a woman who has been greater than John the Baptist. And he said, but John the Baptist is lesser than anyone born into the kingdom of God. You have a level of intimacy with Christ, which the old covenant followers could only dream. Hebrews 10 says this, beginning in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, therefore, he gives us three, let us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, which is the new covenant, without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to come together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, meaning the day of Christ's return, drawing near. Three things. He says, let us draw near. The curtain has been torn. We have unfettered access to the Holy of Holies. Let us draw near. Now, I know there's a couple people here how many of us um, are not ethnically Jewish? Can you raise your hands, please? Hot, nice and high. I know you guys. Okay, now listen. You guys in the old covenant, you didn't even have a chance. Do you realize that? Didn't even have a chance. You're a Gentile. Think about the beauty. Let us draw near. You who were not my people are now called my people. You who were a people far off have now been brought near. Let us draw near with confidence because we're now able. We weren't previously able. Let us stir one another up to love and good deeds. And one way we do this is by gathering together to encourage one another. 
It's a lot harder to stay motivated when you're by yourself. And let us hold fast. Let us, in the context of Hebrews, you know what they weren't holding fast to? The new covenant. They were reaching for the old covenant. And the author of Hebrews' encouragement is, hold fast to the new covenant because it's better. Jesus is better. He's better than all of the laws and the sacrifice. He's better than all that stuff. Jesus is better. Listen, Samuel slept in the tabernacle. That sounds super cool, right? Jesus dwells within his people, okay? Samuel had to wait to hear from God. He couldn't initiate it. Like Scotty said in our prayer time, this isn't trans- transactional. He had to wait to, draw, to wait for God to speak. But now God says to us, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Impossible before. Samuel alone could do certain sacrifices as the high priest and it still wouldn't take away the sin because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But Jesus sacrificed once for all so that our sin is completely removed. And there is therefore no, there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, despite the fact that we'll mess up today and tomorrow and the next day. You see, it's thrilling to read these stories and to say, "Man, I wish I, I wish that Jesus would appear to me in a vision." That is awesome. I, I hope He appears to me in a vision too. But let me tell you something: you should never be jealous. You should never be jealous because in the new covenant, you have access to God that Samuel only experienced in a shadow, that David only experienced in a shadow. Think about that. John the Baptist was beheaded before the Holy Spirit fell upon God's people. You have a greater intimacy with God than John the Baptist had. That's the access that we have. And so what should we learn from Samuel's character? Absolutely. He was eager to obey. He was ready to obey. He shared hard things even when it was difficult. He desired to be close. Yes, but remember this. If you are in Christ, you have even greater access. So draw near with eagerness, with expectancy, desiring to be close to God, desiring to hear his voice, ready to obey as you pray, as you read his word, and as you give the Holy Spirit margin in your life to speak, as you embrace stillness. Guys, we have a better covenant. Sometimes I think we forget that. I know that we're running a little bit late. But listen, when we read the Psalms and and David says things like, oh, Lord, how I yearn to be in your presence. You guys ever read those Psalms and you pray the same thing? Guys, you are in his presence. He dwells within you. We should read those Psalms with ridiculous celebration. Do you understand the difference? We read things through an old covenant lens. When we are new covenant people, those prophecies are looking forward to something that we actually have. That's a wonderful thing. We should not be jealous of them. We should celebrate, and it should spur us on to want to draw near more and more and more because we actually can. Whether we're in an auditorium or in a bar or in a barn, right? All the different places that Revolve has met. Two Mile was a bar. You guys are like, a bar? Yes, a bar, okay? We met in a bar. We met in a barn. We met in a fire hall. It doesn't matter. A living room, a driveway, 
The point is that we can draw near. So what do we do? Draw near. Draw near. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that your people would have this weight lifted off their shoulders. That we don't need to look beyond what you've already done. Your spirit, I pray that it would give us an intimacy with you that we have not experienced. Teach us to be still. Like it says in Psalm 1, like a tree planted by streams of water. God, teach us to be still like a tree. What does it look like to be as still as a tree in your presence? God, I pray that we would learn from one another, teach one another, Lord, encourage one another to be still. Give the Holy Spirit margin to turn our lives upside down so that we might fully encounter the living God because you are eager to meet us and you've already done everything possible to provide the access. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.